This podcast contains adult language and mature themes, which may not be suitable for all listeners. So listen at your own fucking risk. Welcome to Essential NPCs, the podcast where we sample some of the best and possibly some of the worst tabletop RPGs. I'm Addie. And I'm Tommy. And you're listening to Series 7, Episode 20, As Fate Would Have It. We're here. We're at the finale. It's finale time. All right. Uh, So this is the final episode of Series 7. Uh, thank you so much for uh, for being along for this ride. We hope you guys have enjoyed it thus far. Um, we will be dispensing with words with the GM for this episode because at the end of this episode, we will have post-game chatter. Once the narrative is over and we end the campaign, uh, we will all get together and talk about the finale and the campaign as a whole, and we will answer questions from the listeners. So stick around after the episode to make sure to hear the, your questions answered and uh, kind of what our debrief is for the, for the campaign. Also, next week, we won't have a full episode, but instead we will have some awesome bloopers I can personally attest to actually contributing this time around. <laughs> um, and uh, that will be a shorter, fun episode for the week. Uh, and then after that, we will launch Series 8, which will be Fantasy Flight's Star Wars RPG. And who oh boy, am I excited for that. Yeah, uh, in case you missed the announcement in the earlier episodes, uh, it will have myself as the GM, uh, Addy as a player, um, and the return of Daniel Barron and Bree Shukart and Nick Gajeri from this series uh, as the uh, as the rest of the party. Um, we're really, really excited for it. We'll have uh, character art coming out here shortly. So uh, while the bloops are coming out next week leading up to Series 8, keep an eye on on our Facebook and our Instagram. That's where we, that's where we'll be sharing the character art from the very, very talented Lily Dermeyer. Uh, and we've kept you waiting long enough. Let's get into this finale. So thank you guys again for sticking with us for the past 19 episodes. One more to go. And uh, we're excited to share it with you. Let's move on in and listen to Series 7, Episode 20, As Fate Would Have It. Enjoy. The last time we left our heroes, they had activated the icons of Ekarila and received uh, gifts from her. They met an old man named Aurelio, who has been accompanying them on their journey ever since, found Lockham and Grep, dropped them off for babysitting with Caroline and Amboise, which they were very happy about, Mm -hmm. and then... Uh, after some consultation with Caroline, uh, headed into the catacombs underneath the city of Cheruz. They traveled underneath the city, guided by Aurelio, who very honestly told them that with his old decrepit body, he was uh, no threat to them and that he would not turn on them unless it seemed that they were losing. And he wanted to associate with the winning side. Uh, with that good enough for them, they uh, let, allowed him to travel in into the catacombs and then into the Sternith ruins b- beneath, where they came to a chasm 
across which was a camp of presumably Giovanni Bernoulli's, which was set in front of a door that says, um, that is labeled the tomb of Ecarilla. Bastian semi-accidentally uh, activated a Sarnath bridge of some kind that set the alarm off, but now allows the group to cross the bridge. On the other side, the camp is in a hustle and bustle as uh, they know you're there. So we're going to enter an action sequence. What's your approaches? I am going to uh, use the bottom of the bridge unless it is completely smooth, uh, smooth hewn uh, rock. Uh, I am going to uh, climb along the bottom of the bridge uh, to sneak up on the camp. I assume they will be populating the bridge. I want to try and get on the other side of this chasm so that I can sneak in and hopefully find uh, Isabel or, uh, or at the very least, ambush some of the enemies. Uh, sure. Um, there are enough handholds. It'll take you probably a, a few raises to get across underneath. That would make sense. Uh, and you'll roll athletics and brawn. Uh, good friend is... Uh going to use his knowledge as a scald fella. Uh, and as people are uh, running into battle to distract or to fight, uh, he will be there to um, protect them and to assist them as much as possible. Uh, yeah, you can go ahead and roll wits and scholarship. Kirill is going to charge across the bridge and punch a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Amazingly, you'll be rolling brawn and brawl. Uh, Mateo's plan to run interference here is to um, try to in inform the uh, the encampment that they do not know the powers they are messing with. Uh, basically, I'm I'm trying to do uh, doomsay them into uh, to cow them into perhaps listening rather than fighting. I want to demoralize them. Sure, panache and convince. I think so. The first opportunity uh is um to spend five raises on uh locating isabel on initiative count zero the bridge will retract <laughs> <laughs> reinforcements will arrive uh when we roll again uh and it'll be three raises for bastian to sneak across underneath and unseen. Now is the time to spend hero points. Uh, Captain Kirill will command everyone. Uh, get to the door, find Isabel. And everyone gets a hero point. Let's roll. Uh, the bridge comes up around Bastian as uh, he, he pulls the lever with his foot. It slams into place. By flattening out. There's now a bridge between you and the other side of the chasm. Those of you who are on land, I suppose, uh, which is Kirill and Mateo and Gudbrand and Aurelio, uh, have a fairly wide, clear path to the other side of the chasm. Bastian, your your trek across the um, bridge is a little bit more tenuous as you try to uh, head underneath instead of on top. As Combatants, enemy combatants, uh, pour out of the tents on the other side. Two brute squads of ten and one brute squad of eight and one brute squad of six jog out. And um, as it seems, the other 
combatants are staying uh, up in the sort of village area. A group of six flies across the bridge uh, preternaturally and uh, cut at Kirill uh, with their blades. Uh, Kirill, you will take six wounds. Uh, and, uh, now we'll drop into our action sequence. Kirill, how many raises do you have? Kirill has 11. Uh, Mateo? I eight raises for Mateo. Gudbrandt has three raises. And, uh, Bastian? Uh, I have three raises. Uh, okay, uh, Kirill, you're up first. Yeah, Kirill is going to get fancy and, uh, faint attack uh, the first of this uh, six-person brute squad on the bridge. Uh, dealing one wound now and an additional next time I hit him. Uh, okay. As you do a light jab, like, uh, but then pull away at the last second and it's sort of like an intimidation tactic, one guy goes ah, ah, ah! <laughs> <laughs> uh, off the side of the bridge. Too far flinching. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and uh, you see uh, Giovanni uh, step out from like the village area and begin walking towards the bridge. Uh, Kirill, you're up again. They will next punch uh, for six wounds. You sort of uh, put your shoulder down and uh, just sort of like barrel through and like smack the guy at the end with your fist as they all sort of like just fall off the sides of the bridge. <laughs> Bastian, this is a sight. Uh, also kind of a harbinger of doom if you're not careful. Yeah. From the perspective of the camp, is this bridge still mostly in darkness? Yeah. Okay. Giovanni um, uh, takes out crossbow and aims it down the center of the bridge and just shoots. Uh, he spends a raise and, and uh, he hits you for one, unless you, uh, Kirill, unless you'd like to uh, negate it. Kirill takes the arrow. Uh, Kirill, you're up again. Uh, now that the bridge is clear of assassins, uh, it is time to commit to a more wild and direct course. Uh, and they will recklessly charge at the largest brute squad I can find you keep for reckless takedown. So as you run past Bernoulli and he just sort of like pulls out a knife just in time for you to, like, have it slash into your side. Um, you run up the hill towards the, the, like, tent village area and pull uh, the chalks out from behind a, a, a wagon, and uh, it rolls down the hill and just takes out, like, a whole bunch of guards as they go, just... <laughs> Eight guards or ten guards? Ten. Okay. Good brand. You see this as it happens, coming uh, just over the tents, over at the bridge, uh, and then a bottle just crashes right at Mateo's feet, and it cracks open, uh, and uh, that like gray liquid begins to sort of like foam out of it and harden. Good, yeah, good friend. Good friend uh, sees the bottle coming and he shouts out to uh, Mateo, uh, "Look out! Uh, it's uh, it's her! It's the it's the alchemist!" <laughs> um, and uh, use uh, activates his virtue, astute. 
if a villain takes an action, uh, it fails, and but they still spend the raises. Yeah, just before it crashes at Mateo's feet, you're, you you cry out to him, and and he sort of and steps back as the as the sort of um, the the foam, the gray hardening foam uh, bubbles out of the the tube and slowly hardens. Thank you, good friend. Uh, then um, Giovanni uh, again. Uh, just uh, with his crossbow, shoots into the darkness. Who's in front? Oh, it's me. It's me. Uh, taking one wound. Uh, Kirill or Mateo, uh, it is your turn. Breathing in as much as I can with an arrow in my shoulder, um, I, I I cry out, um, wait, as, as I charge forward over the bridge and, and begin to try and, and concoct a thousand beautiful alchemical potions of truth and lie to try and um, uh, stop these people in their tracks, it gets caught in my throat. I just have too many... Uh, there are too many possibilities of things to say. And in, in a flash, it is as if time stops. And in my mind's eye, I see myself before a mirror. Uh, befi- behind me, my, uh, my father, all in white, with his hands on my shoulders, who steps to the side to reveal a mirror behind me as well. And I see myself reflected infinitely in both directions. And I spend a hero point to activate Glittering Mirage. And I split... As I as I reach the end of the bridge, into six Mateos, each with an arrow protruding from his shoulder, each holding two bags, uh, presumably containing the icons of uh, Ekarila, and splitting into six directions. Uh, uh, go one going before, uh, one like running to stand directly in front of um, Bernoulli, uh, one running to stand uh, before the, the Botisario, uh, and, like, the other four, like, scattering throughout the camp to make contact with, like, um, with different people and begin to try and um, stop them in their course. Uh, so my, the, first, uh, the first one that uh, I hit is Bernoulli, and the Matteo in front of him, says, stop, you do not know what you are doing. You are in grave danger here. This is a place of great and ancient power. And I'm going to apply pressure to him, uh, spending a raise, uh, to stop and listen to me and stop all this shooting, this blind shooting. Kirill sees six Mateos now, yes? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Uh, Kirill... Puts away thought in the back of his mind that we may have traveled into hell. Uh, he finds uh, the next brute squad. He smiles uh, menacingly at them, points at them, points back at Mateos, says uh, arrogantly, I think we have you outnumbered. <laughs> <laughs> and then begins to trample towards them to attack. Kiro bashes into them uh, to deal a wound and detract from the next amount of wounds they will be doing. Okay, who is the uh, person in front on the bridge? I'm pretty sure it is me. Okay, cool. You take one wound unless you'd like to spend a raise to negate it. Ouchies. No, I'll take it. Okay. Uh, And then uh, Paolo comes uh, uh, charging at you, uh, Kirill, just as you've uh, uh, faced the brute squads, uh, or faced the brute squad. Um... Um, and he is going to bash you in the back of the head. Oof. He's at a four. Uh, four less. Four less. Yeah. Kirill. 
I turn briefly. I say, I'll be with you in a minute. I turn <laughs> back to Brute Squad and I punch them. It is only one wound now. Poor guy just gets like clocked in the noggin. <laughs> and uh, Paolo like audibly growls. Vivia leans over to the uh, Mateo next to her, mm-hmm. who's been just like watching her. And uh, she pecks him on the cheek. That's the real me. Oh. I have it written down. Going to Australia. Yeah. Uh, so she she kisses you. Uh, her eyes flash, um, and you lose a raise. Gutbrand again. You see a small vial just like flying through the air, uh, heading toward you. Um, this time, I'll hop out of the way. Okay. Uh, so you'll spend a raise to do that? Yes, I will. When it lands, what uh, what does it look like? It is a uh, like a blue liquid that sort of just crashes on the ground. Uh, actually, Bastian, you see this as well, just like seep through right in front of your face. I will wait for that to stop drinking. <laughs> <laughs> Kirill Paolo will uh, slash at you. Four, four wounds. Four wounds. And it is your turn. Uh, I repost, trying to copy some of the movements I see uh, Bastion doing, uh, but with fists instead of swords. (laughs) I said I would be with you in minutes. (laughs) (laughs) Again, Giovanni just shoots into the darkness, whoever's in front. Uh, I'll let this hit me. Okay, Uh, you take one wound. Vivia books it. She's going to spend her rays running away from Mateo. Paolo is going to uh, faint uh, to you, uh, Captain Kirill. Mm-hmm. The brutes finally uh, regaining their nerve attack you, dealing five wounds. Reduced by five because they were most recently bashed. Kirill, it's your turn. Yeah, this is getting to be an annoyance, says Kirill, and he uh, leans low, holds his arm out straight and wide, and swings backward, knocking five of these brute squad out. Okay. So, um, Paolo runs up to Kirill and, uh, in a quick, uh, bashes him on the back of the head. And as he moves forward, uh, uh, goes to slash at him. And Kirill, uh, turns around and with his bracers, blocks the blade and punches Paolo in the throat. And then Kirill turns around to the brute squad, which had basically stuttered in attacking him and uh, and just uh, with a, a haymaker hits uh, the first guy and he uh, falls into the others um, pushing them all back into the tent which falls on them. <laughs> um, now, duelist, you have my attention. <laughs> Giovanni, this time, if you surrender, I will not kill you as he fires another shot. <laughs> One of my illusions turned around. That's a lie. <laughs> uh, and, he, and he shoots his crossbow down into the dark. Uh, this time I will duck. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll pull it all down. Okay. Ow, that's very tight. Would you rather be hit by an arrow? Depends how hard. <laughs> <laughs> Mateo, it, it's, your, it's your turn. Okay. Vivia, the, the faith witch, she spent a race to run away from me. Do I have to spend a race to catch up to her? 
Uh, yeah, if you want to like catch up and like talk to her, you can. That is, uh, but like she basically uh, sprinted away. So to follow her, you kind of have to sprint. So while in the background, four other Mateos are like chattering at like there's one chattering at Jeanette. There's one like yelling at like a brute squad. There, there's one um, like harassing uh, Paolo, like with like all manner of, of like different like predictions of the end times <laughs> every possible logical argument uh i i try to catch up to vivia and i say wait listen we do not wish to hurt you you do not have to be doing this we are here to stop these people if you do not want to fight for them uh, uh, stand down be at peace uh, we we do not want to harm you uh, and i would like to spend a raise to p- apply pressure for her to uh not to join our side, but at least to turn neutral. Like, basically to stop uh, pulling the strands. Uh, please, d- uh, don't... Don't uh, don't hurt me. I, I, um, I'm only doing uh, what, what I must. And, uh, and she, like, scrambles backward. Jeanette sees uh, Vivia break for it and runs that direction. Uh, and she spends her action looking for Vivia. An illusory Mateo <laughs> runs after her. You know, the, the alchemical components you are working with may not react favorably with the, with the ancient magical energies in this room. <laughs> uh, Kirill, Paolo lunges. Hmm. Your back turned, having just taken out the brute squad. He sees his opportunity, and he takes it, and he lunges at you. Um, and you take mm, ten wounds because of the faint. Oh, yes. Aurelio, Aurelio is like, sorry, Vestador, you're on your own. <laughs> and books it across the bridge. I wish I hadn't saved you from that arrow. Thanks. <laughs> I mean, he's running as much as an old man can run. So he makes it, I guess, halfway right. Hobbling across as he does, waving his cane, almost falling over, puts his cane back down, steadies himself, keeps going. Uh, Kirill, it's your turn. Oh, you want to play the hitting game? I lunge back at him uh, for nine wounds. Sure. Uh, Giovanni, for a moment, goes to shoot his crossbow, and then he sees howling out of the darkness his tactician. <laughs> he goes, What are you doing here? Tactical retreat! <laughs> And uh, Giovanni raises his uh, crossbow up just slightly and lets it loose into the darkness uh, at Gutbrand. Gutbrand is uh, focused on the old man running away from him. He's very upset. He does not see the arrow coming and it hits him. Uh, Jeanette finds you and Vivia, uh, Matteo. She skids to a stop and she goes, what is uh, Get away from her. And uh, throws a bottle uh, hitting um uh, hit, hitting Vivia in the in the like chest, uh, and Vivia immediately dashes away. Aurelio, Gutbrand, uh, and Bastian, and Matteo, you all have, are at three. I am at one. Oh yes. yeah, you are at one. Then uh, flanking Jeanette on both sides with Matteo's, uh, uh, 
we are going to basically like alternate like on and off like uh pre presenting my argument to to her and it's like you have misconstrued my intention here yes it's true <laughs> we we are not we are not here to harm anyone indeed we are here in fact to warn you <laughs> these catacombs are filled with an unstable magical energy and you are exacerbating it and i want to apply uh pressure on her to not do anything alchemical uh, you you do and and she's sort of like <laughs> like watching a like a badminton match. Just her head keeps going back and forth. Bastian, uh, I will spend uh, two of my raises uh, to make it nearly to the end of this bridge. Okay. Uh, Jeanette takes a swing uh, at the at the Mateo on her left, which ends up being the correct Mateo. The, physical Mateo. The physical Mateo. Ow. <laughs> <laughs> I come here to save you and you slap me? <laughs> She's believing you enough that, like, her hand stays for a moment at her belt. And then she just kind of, like, raises it up and, like, slaps you. Uh, just to see, like, if she's hallucinating which one of which one of you she's hallucinating. And she, uh... Is that a wound? That is a wound. Oh, my God. Aurelio spends another raise to get to the end of the bridge. Uh, and he he looks up at Giovanni and is like, I I told you they might be coming. I don't know how they got down here. I was just <laughs> returning to you. <laughs> uh, so actually, Giovanni spends his turn arguing with Aurelio. You you could you probably led them here. No, that's not right. <laughs> I'm very sneaky. You are you are an old man. What do you what do you know about sneaky? <laughs> What do you know? They found you. Etc., <laughs> etc. Et yeah, illusory Mateo in the background. Ha! <laughs> Mateo and Aurelio get to go. Aurelio's going to keep arguing with uh, Giovanni. A brute squad of, of 10 individuals uh, uh, run up to Giovanni awaiting orders. Mateo, you're at two. All right, one of my illusions is definitely going to run up to that brute squad and be like, <laughs> no, you will do no more harm to me or you will do no more harm to my allies. If you wish to get that to them, they, you must go through me. <laughs> and I will, <laughs> I will yeah, the illusion will stand before them and I'll spend a race to apply pressure on them to attack me. <laughs> uh, yeah, you do that. Uh, and they, they turn, they're like, okay. <laughs> And they just all sort of like go to like <laughs> stab you or like push you off the the the, the cliffside or whatever. Yeah. And you just burst into a million pieces. Well, <laughs> uh, my the illusion makes sure to make a big show of it. Sure. Like, ooh, sure. Ah, oh, ow, ooh, oh, oh. And so, uh, Mateo, uh, Aurelio, Gutbrand, and Bastian, you all have one. Uh, so, good friend, uh, uh, after being hit by three arrows, <laughs> dodging another one, and uh, dodging a mysterious potion, is uh, is kind of sick of these people, uh, and uh, says he, he sees Kirill, uh, who is uh, the one who can probably do the most damage, and uh, he quickly on his slate scrolls uh, a galder with the... Uh, Stort Merka of Iron, and also the uh, Litet Merka of Iron, and uh, he applies pressure to Kirill, and he says, Kirill, punch that creepy growling bastard, uh, and if he acts in line with the pressure, he uh, 
heals wounds equal to his highest trait, and if he overcomes it, he gains a hero point. And with the Latet Merca, he may choose to gain a raise and take wounds equal to his highest trait. So I, I do not do that one, uh, but I tightened my hand, perhaps invigorated by uh, by good friend, and uh, they'll be ready to punch soon when I stand up from this lunch. <laughs> And uh, as soon as I have uh, struck my hand through the uh, galder, I, I finish running across the bridge. Yeah, great. You do all of that. Uh, Mateo, Aurelio, and Bastian? While um, the Mateos are um, haranguing uh, Jeanette, um, in the midst of one of his arguments, uh, you fools don't even know what you're doing. You don't know the first rule of archaeology. And he turns to the door. Don't touch anything. And he sees on the door the the Sirneth lettering, uh, and uh, as he like kind of takes it in, like both both him and the illusion kind of like look over, and he he's like reading the lettering on the door. I'd like to spend a raise to create an opportunity for myself that there are some kind of ancient arcane occult magical defenses on the door to protect it from tomb raiders. Sure, yeah, you can do that. There is. It's fascinating. Aurelio continues to scold Giovanni. And, uh, and where is the girl? I mean, these brutes left her, so she's obviously going to get rescued. It's not exactly a bright plan now, is it? And he's going to put one towards locating Isabel. Aww. You idiot. <laughs> Bastian, you're the last one to go. Uh, I will uh, uh, reach the end of the, uh, the other end of the chasm and uh, and move myself uh, along the side and climb up into the cap- camp unnoticed. As I assume the bridge falls, yes, <laughs> just beside me. Uh, it turns uh, like the two pieces uh, uh, split and uh, shoot back down into the darkness. <laughs> You can see them with your true sight laying on the bottom of the uh, chasm very far down. Oh, I did not look down. Holy, this was a very bad idea. <laughs> uh, yeah, all right. That is um, the end of the round. Uh, a tent flap bursts open and, and uh, um, uh, two brew squads of five uh, burst out. Uh, of the tent and, and run into position. Uh, yeah. Uh, tell me of your approaches. Mateo, this is easy. Uh, now that he's seen that there is some kind of uh, Sirneth defense to be activated, I think he's going to uh, try his damnedest to uh, activate it with his knowledge of Sirneth artifacts and ruins. You can roll wits and scholarship for this. Kirill is going to continue fighting this growling duelist. Okay, brawn and brawl. Goodbrand is going to try and uh, make himself seem far more dangerous than he perhaps actually is. Uh, And he is going to uh, loudly and obviously uh, bard the shit out of these people. Uh, and uh, he, just with his slate, furiously be scribbling, uh, scribbling, Amerkas, whether they be uh, a Galder or not. I am going to uh, uh, remain hidden and begin searching the camp uh, uh, for uh, Isabel uh, and try to release her if I can, uh, using the carnage of this fight uh, to mask my approach. Sure. So you can. Um... Roll finesse and hide. 
and Gudbrand, you will roll wits and um, either intimidate or perform. So uh, you can choose then. Yeah, I'm gonna go with intimidate. I don't even have my cloak or my makeup, but you know, maybe a fancy man is more scary. You never know. <laughs> <laughs> um, you still have uh, four left on locating Isabel. Yeah, let's do uh, to activate the security device on the door. It is four raises. Uh, yeah, so now is the time to spend hero points. I gotta tell you, folks, I've been waiting for this. <laughs> uh, I have long thought about uh, the moment that we would face uh, Jeanette, uh, Paolo, Vivia, and Bernoulli, uh, and uh, I will definitely spend a hero point to give four bonus dice to um, Goodbrand, and that will duplicate. Uh, I've been waiting this, will duplicate that to give four bonus dice also to Capitano Kirill. I will then spend another hero point to activate Brains of the Outfit to give five bonus dice in addition to uh, Kirill. Uh, and then with Camaraderie, I will spend a hero point to give a Bastion four bonus dice as well. Yeah, okay, uh, let's roll. Kirill? Uh, 18. Matteo? A mere 10. Uh, Goodbrand? Five for Goodbrand and one remainder. Bastian? Uh, eight with one remainder. Kirill, you have eight more raises than everyone else. Okay. What would you like to do with them? The time is now. We have them on the defensive. Don't hold back, for nothing can stop the Black Ice Brigade. <laughs> hey, this is good name. Uh, first, if Ship Wizard tells you to do something, you do it. Uh, I bash um, Paolo uh, and heal the wounds from his magic. Then I uh, will punch Paolo for five. Uh, then I will bash Paolo for one. Uh, then I will punch pillow for five. <laughs> <laughs> then I, I have some fun with him. I juke behind. I faint punch for one. <laughs> <laughs> Which he doesn't do anything about. Uh, I suppose after faint I should uh, punch again. <laughs> or yeah. six. Then they say, good bro, now is the time. Uh, fire lightning bolt at him. Uh, uh, rain down hellfire. Blessed of Freezing frigid air. <laughs> oh, all right, I just punch him. <laughs> <laughs> I will bash him for old time's sake. Uh, sure. Uh, and then punch him. Uh, he's helpless. So, um, underneath, uh, Kirill came, uh, never goes anywhere unprepared. Uh, and underneath his fancy dress shirt, uh, he's put on bracers made of lobster. Uh, <laughs> And seashell. And um, as he uh, uh, is stabbed very badly, Gutbrand yells out uh, for him to stand up and, and fight back, which uh, Kirill takes to heart. And he, uh, he, he bashes Paolo. And then he punches him. And Paolo, like, stumbles backwards and, like, you know, blocks a little bit with a... Uh, with his sword when he can, but uh, his sword actually like falls to the ground, uh, and he just tries to like duck, uh, but he's he's dazed, and and there's just this onslaught of like bash, punch, bash, punch, and there's a brief moment of respite where Kirill is like sheep wizard, the wizard, uh, and 
when no wizard happens, uh, <laughs> uh, Kirill, impatient as ever, bashes and then wallops uh, Paolo, uh, who collapses to the ground in a heap of pulped mess. This is why they called me the pummeling crab. <laughs> uh, and it's Giovanni's turn. And he, uh, Giovanni looks down at Aurelio and uh, you traitor and uh, kicks him. And Aurelio uh, falls to the ground. Um, and Giovanni spits on him. There is a fourth one somewhere. Come, let's find him. To the brood squad of 10? Mm-hmm. Kirill and Matteo, you are both at 10. Uh, the next person to go is Bastian at 8. And then Jeanette. Er, and then Giovanni at six. Uh, I turn to Matteo uh, beside me. Uh, maybe his illusion. Who is to say? I say, yes, Matteo, I know. I make promise. I go find uh, Alchemist. And one raise to to reach, perhaps. Yeah, one raise to bash. So you uh, run along the the wall to to where the alchemist is, surrounded by two Mateos. Uh, Mateos, you're very insistent. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And you uh, barrel into her, uh, throwing her backwards. I say, ah, C- Capitano, you are here. Jeanette, you could have surrendered any time heretofore. If it's any compliment to you, I told him to kill you first. Uh, and uh, I'm going to have one of the, the, the illusion that is next to her um, uh, turn to the, the Sirneth inscriptions on the door and begin, uh, like, chanting and translating. I'll say two raises to activate the... Uh, Occult security measures here. Okay. Uh, Kirill, Mateo, and Bastian, you are all at eight. All right. I'm going to spend two more races, and I'm going to let's see what this door's got going on. <laughs> As I haltingly chant in what I believe Sirneth to sound like. Uh, there's sort of like a good junk sound. Sort of like where your uh, words would hit the uh, the wall begins to sort of light up and the lights begin to spread throughout the doors. Um, and, and there's sort of a, uh, a s- almost like a static sound coming from the lights as they light up. Very ominous, I punch uh, Alchemist. <laughs> <laughs> For five weeks. Yeah, you do. Uh, I will spend four races as I dart through this camp, uh, circling around and tightening uh, my uh, circle as I go. Uh, until I find the tent that uh, Isabel is being held in. You uh, poke your head in as you as you go um, around the outskirts, remaining hidden, and uh, you you uh, go into the tent, and uh, Isabel is um, fairly badly beaten, tied down to a chair. Uh, as I find her, I will uh, draw my blade, and I will go, my darling, you look resplendent as ever, as I move to cut her free. Kirill, it's your turn again. Uh, continue to uh, to hit the alchemist this time with a feint. Uh, I point down to uh, to ground as if uh, perhaps her boots are unlaced, and then I step to the side to prepare for next hit. Sure, uh, Goodbrand, you see Giovanni stalk into the like village area of the um, of the encampment where uh, 
it's looking a little less like a village now that there's a couple of tents that have been knocked over and a cart has rolled into the crevasse. Um, and I had a few other things, but they, he and his uh, his brute squad walk up there. Kirill and Mateo, you're at six. Did did I see Vivia like disappear? Did she go away forever? Did she like leave the scene? No, but she did like run away and try to hide. Okay, I will. I will apply. Uh, I will spend a raise to apply pressure on uh, Jeanette to make her think that, uh, or maybe to make her understand that uh, the illusory Matteo that is chanting and causing this wall to glow and, and emit a static crackling sound is a much bigger threat than even the giant that is attacking her. Um, so I am. I am putting pressure on her to uh, attack the illusion. Okay. As, as uh, the chanting uh, grows portentous and ominous. <laughs> uh, and Kirill? Uh, as she turns her head to look at uh, what Mateo has distracted her for, uh, I will elbow her to the ground, uh, and I will say, empty your pockets and I will let you live. Gudbrand, you see um, Giovanni, like, throw open a tent flap, uh, look inside, and uh, and then stalk away, and uh, the guards are in line behind him, like Jeanette uh, reaches down and takes off her belt and uh, and throws it on the ground and uh, gets on her knees. Mateo, uh, you find yourself flying backwards from Jeanette. Real me, yes? Real you, because she can tell the difference. Yes, and that means if I can't see the wall anymore, I can't be translating. Yep. So, uh, Chanting Mateo's like, um, <laughs> lost my place. Sorry. <laughs> uh, and uh, you um, fly through um, one of the tents, like collapsing a corner, and you take two wounds. Kirill, Mateo, and Gutbrand, you're at five. Gutbrand is uh, going to spend a raise to make an opportunity for himself, and uh, he recognizes a, a very familiar ascot around the neck of one of the gentlemen. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's just going to catch his eye and uh, give him a steely glint because he's not wearing the same, or uh, he, he's not wearing the makeup, but I know that this man will recognize my eyes. <laughs> <laughs> He totally does. <laughs> <gasps> no. <laughs> Kirill and Mateo, uh, you have five. In this tent I've been pulled into, did I just like... Through. Through? Mm -hmm. Did I see anyone in the tent or did the tent collapse? Uh, no, you were you were pulled basically uh, through the corner of it. Okay. So like uh, basically you collapsed a little bit as mm -hmm. you flew through like sticks and tarps and and, and whatnot. Uh, 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 you, you're you're currently like on your back, staring up at the cavern ceiling, uh, a little bit wounded from from the trip. Yeah. If I like roll over onto my uh, stomach, can I see Vivia? Yeah. Okay. Um, Perhaps I, I can make a uh, scholastic argument uh, um, and um, I will like get up and, and walk through her, but still with two bags in my hands um, 
uh, and say to her, How can you not understand this? I am not your enemy. Stop fighting me. Uh, <laughs> I am here to help you, if anything. And uh, I would like to uh, spend a raise to apply pressure for her to stop attacking me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a nice guy, I swear. She she looks uh her face is like legitimately like I'm sorry. <laughs> uh Kirill? I with uh with my boot I kick the belt she has taken off uh into the pit. Um I apply pleasure to her to tell her now stay out of this to the Jeanette the Alchemist. Uh okay, yeah. Matteo uh Giovanni turns the corner. He, he yells it at Vivia. Vivia, do as you're told. Throw them over the cliff. The group of ten guards follow him. Kiro, Mateo, and Bastien, and Goodfriend, all of you have four raises. Uh, one of my three remaining uh, illusions uh, will pop over. I'll have uh, uh, him pop over next to Goodfriend and, like, salute. And, and it's like, uh, Mr. Misty Mateo reporting for duty, sir. Anything, <laughs> anything you need from me? Uh, <laughs> and, uh, if you need uh, if you need a doppelganger, if you need a mirage, Mateo, you got it. All right, <laughs> take an opportunity. So, uh, good good friend. Uh, he has he has noticed this friend. He has caught his eye, and uh, he is going to um, point directly at him. He's pointing uh, at his uh, ascotted friend, and he says, "You know how this goes. <laughs> bring me your bow. Bring me your arrows, and walk away." And he is using both scathing indictment and inspired generosity <laughs> to scare the shit out of these people. <laughs> so as uh, they're moving up to you, uh, good friend, and uh, you point, and the guy with the ascot is standing in front, and he just, for a second... He, he doesn't notice, and then all of a sudden, a, a flash of recognition passes over his flooding face. flooding back. And he uh, shoots out his arms to stop his friends. And uh, they go, like, what? This, this is him. <laughs> this is the man. I haven't lost it, I swear. <laughs> Only now do I realize absolutely... Can Gudbrand see the future? Because he told him to hold on to that ascot, specifically because he knew this would happen <laughs> so he could recognize him later and take his bow. <laughs> He's a very good wizard. <laughs> and they all uh, sort of like take a half step back. And then uh, one guy behind him just reaches and like pushes him forward with like two fingers <laughs> and uh and the the guy with the ascot uh stumbles forward a little bit looks back at his friends takes another couple steps forward takes off his bow and uh un unbuckles his quiver and reaching out as far as he can, keeping as most distance as he can from you, he hands you his bow and his quiver. Not blinking, not breaking eye contact. I gently take them from his hands. And he uh, 
backs up really quickly, and his friends like catch him. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> We've got to get the fuck out of here. <laughs> the guy with the ascot lays down uh, at the edge of the cliff face, and two guys uh, grab his legs and they hold him down. Um, and then uh, he counts down from three, pulls on something, and then they pull him up just as uh, the uh, the uh, drawbridge comes back up and uh, they book it. And they're out of the fight. Kirill and Bastian? Uh, Kirill uh, stretches, uh, he pops his back and uh, pulls the leg behind him, uh, stretching out his his leg muscles, and he says, okay, back to work, and he recklessly takes down the ten-point brute squad. <laughs> the one that is searching for me? The one that is searching with Giovanni. Okay, great. I love this. Um, so, the, the drawbridge slams up, and it's loud like thunder. Everybody can hear it. And as that is happening, um, Kirill uh, leaves the, uh, the uh, Botisario where she is, cricks his neck, uh, puts his head down, and literally just tackles ten guys right from from out from behind Giovanni. Just like a a train. (laughs) They were on just like a tiny little like hillock uh, and uh, Kirill's lands on top of them as they fall just a few feet uh, and uh, your blow is is cushioned, but you get like a little like punch in the gut a little bit as you land on top of them. Uh, uh, I will cut Isabel free, uh, remove the gag from her mouth, and I will uh, spend the raise to improvise uh, as I spend three more raises, uh, pulling her into a small side tent and kissing her ravishly. <laughs> yeah, you totally do. And before uh, you, you cut her bonds and you like remove the gag, and before uh, she can even say anything, you pull her into the side tent and, and, and uh, just kiss her passionately. Uh, and at the end of the kiss, she like slugs you in the face. That makes sense. Uh, you take two wounds unless you want to negate them. No. Okay. What took you so long? I heard absence makes the heart grow fonder, and I kiss her again. Okay. Uh, Giovanni turns around and looks at you, uh, Kirill. I tip my hat to him again. And he uh, slashes at you. That's uh, six wounds. Okay, at a post. So I take one wound, and he takes uh, five. And uh, he he stands smugly over uh, smugly over you, and uh, says. Not so mighty now, now, are you? Oh, no, I'm pretty mighty. And as you say, oh, no, I'm pretty mighty, Vivia's eyes light up, and um, she throws both hands out towards Giovanni. No more will I listen to your orders, and grasps nothing uh, in midair and pulls as hard as she can uh, while backing up uh, toward, toward the cliff edge. Uh, Giovanni flies backwards, um, uh, landing off balance next to Vivia. And that's her turn. So uh, you hear a a sort of a... Um, And the door um, itself uh, releases a pulse, pushing everyone backwards who's not, like, already 
uh, on the ground or holding onto something, or able to grab onto something. That means uh, uh, Jeanette flies into a tent. Uh, Aurelio uh, rolls onto the drawbridge. The standing brute squad of five also uh, is pushed onto their backs into uh, the other cart um, and uh, sort of uh, uh, falter and fall over each other in a comedic way. And uh, and, um, Vivia and Giovanni uh, fly off the cliff. Uh, Matteo and Gutbrand, you are at three. Can Gutbrand still see... uh... Uh, Jeanette? Yeah, sure. She she was right up next to the door, so she was pushed through the tent and comes rolling out the other side. <laughs> um, I'm going to spend uh, my last three raises. Uh, one is to improvise. Uh, one is to take out the sleeping potion and uh, uh, empty it without touching any of the liquid uh, onto the arrow. Uh, and then uh, I'm going to use the opportunity presented by Matteo and uh, say... Uh, Misty Matty, why don't you check on our friend, uh, Jeanette? And uh, I'm going to watch him walk over to her and uh, see her look up into his eyes. And uh, just as he opens his mouth, perhaps to say something, he's going to fire an arrow through uh, the fake Mateo's head uh, at Jeanette. Yeah, you do. And she passes out. And that's what you get for using sleeping potions. <laughs> uh, so Mateo is, is of course, uh, buffeted by this pulse. His illusions are just like, eh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not real. <laughs> and um, if possible, Mateo would like to spend a raise. I'd like to spend a raise to improvise and all the two, the rest of my raises to see if I can uh, uh, convert this commute this momentum from the door into uh, diving to the edge of the cliffside to try and catch Vivia. Yeah, you, in almost a, a panic, you've been trying to, like, bring uh, bring this girl out of, like, her situation, and uh, you, you actually think for a moment and allow yourself to be pushed by the, this pulse, uh, and you land hand out over the cliff, She's already fallen. Uh. Falling. She's already falling. Vivia, pull! Vivia, uh, eyes wide, is falling. And uh, she, uh, you, Mateo, you feel a pull on you um, as, like, you sort of slide towards the uh, the uh, crevasse. Um, and then uh, you stop. You, like, catch your boot on, like, a tiny little rock that, like, is enough to create enough friction for you to stop moving. Uh, and uh, it's just enough for your like fingertips to, to meet and uh, she is uh, and, and you grasp hands um, and she's literally like dangling over a cliffside being held up by Mateo. Uh, Kirill, you're at uh, two. Uh, I use a raise to improvise and I use last raise to intimidate the uh, remaining five person brute squad. Uh, basically, uh, yes, hands outstretched, uh, turning around, gesturing at entire scene, uh, gesturing at Kirill, gesturing back at entire scene, and saying, come on. <laughs> <laughs> they absolutely drop their weapons and surrender. They might be brutes, but they're not dummies. 
and will come out of an action sequence. Capitano, I can't pull her up. <laughs> I come to help and I pull up, uh, I pull up Mateo and uh, Vivian. Yeah, she is uh, like uh, pale and sweaty <laughs> and uh, she, it gets, it takes just a moment before she like relaxes and when she does she like screams out in pain which uh as you know mateo uh she's uh relieving herself of the lashes of fate uh that she's collected uh and she uh passes out yeah i i i don't let her fall to the ground like i do i do catch her sure. and, like if there's any consciousness left i tell her you're safe now it's okay and um i i'm just kind of left there like holding her um where is bastian bastian Bastian, brother. Where is Bastian? Brother, where are you? And Goodbrand starts running from tent to tent, flinging the flaps open. <laughs> Bastian, brother, brother, tell me you're okay. No, nah, Goodbrand. <laughs> oh my God. Ah! Here, after all this, we spent our entire uh, the entire time fighting, and you're here making out like a schoolboy. I I uh, I button back up my uh, my um my doublet, fix my hair, and go. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Goodbrand, I was just coming to rescue you. <laughs> Fine job you're doing. I look and I shrug. <laughs> I go, you, you three did not need my help. Besides, there are some things more important than the glory of battle. And I gesture towards Isabel. And Isabel, you should be ashamed of yourself. Haven't you broken his heart enough times? Frankly, you can do better. <laughs> oh come now it wouldn't be an adventure without a little romance <laughs> I say carrying the limp body unconscious, unconscious body of Vivia the yeah. fate witch there's a, there's a cot in this tent that um, I don't know maybe uh, Isabel is sitting on and I like uh, I scoot over and I like edge her off it <laughs> and like I'm just going to use this for its intended purpose if you don't mind <laughs> and I'm going to lay uh, Vivia down on that cot uh, to rest uh, while she recovers. You'll be joyed to know, Bastian, that indeed Bernoulli is undone. Good. The world is better without him. Agreed. Although I am very curious to see what it is that he so desired, what his uh, machinations portended behind this door. Well, the door is right there. Are you telling me you cannot open it? I grin. <laughs> you wound me, Bastian. You wound me. Uh, and um, uh, I and my two remaining doppelgangers... Uh, <laughs> This is this is a nightmare. <laughs> Converge on one location and return to myself. It is so much nicer when I can focus a hundred percent of my energy on translation, and I gently like pour out uh, the the idols out of the bag. I cannot touch them. Correct? Uh, they are too hot to touch. Yes. We Aurelio, didn't... are you here? Uh, you hear from a far off corner. Yes? <laughs> you sly dog. Don't think I didn't hear you trying to help us. Uh, you're part of the Black Ice Brigade now, and you won't want to miss this. We're, we're really sticking with that name? <laughs> <laughs> I, I swear to Theus, Aurelio. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm just... All I'm saying is that there might be something... Uh, uh, something else. Yeah, all could... right. The suggestion box is open. <laughs> well, I was thinking Aurelio's fellows. <laughs> <laughs> I second Aurelio's fellows. So I... be it. The motion carries. 
Aurelio's fellows. No, that's not so odd, is it? <laughs> Come on, the door's going to open soon, I think. Into the unknown. Isabel, would you do the honors? All right. As she limps towards the door, I uh, approach quietly behind Goodbrand. Uh, I say, Goodbrand, I think of question for your bones. Ah, uh, yes, Captain. Uh, please uh, uh, join me in this tent. Uh, there is a half-standing tent nearby. Um, I have the captain uh, sit across from me. I uh, center myself. I uh, I pull out my my the, I pull I pull the sack of bones from around my neck and uh, uh, prepare them. Captain, uh, what would you like to ask the bones? Does Captain Kittle have best ships wizard ever? I cast the bones. <laughs> <laughs> what do they say? The bones don't hesitate. Yes. Yes. A thousand times. Yes. <laughs> and I throw my arms around him. Oh, that is enough. Let me go see door. <laughs> uh, as you walk up, Isabel is hefting uh, the second block into, uh, into place as she, she likes, uh, slides it in. <laughs> There's like a, like a, like a gonging sound. Um, and then, uh, all of the light that had been um, sort of uh, uh, displayed throughout um, the door uh, shoots back into the blocks. And then where the blocks are uh, is a seam uh, and it uh, opens inward to uh, like a misty, like violet white light. Well, you had me open the door. Are we going in or not? She offers her hand to Sebastian. I, I take it. Gutbrand takes Bastian's other hand. What the? Oh, okay, sure. <laughs> <laughs> Matteo takes Gutbrand's hand. <laughs> Kittle brings up their ear. <laughs> Aurelio walks through the door uh, first, and you hear on the other side, Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. <laughs> Here we go again. <laughs> and then you guys uh, walk through. And that's where we'll end our campaign. <laughs> Roll credits. Welcome to uh, Central NPCs Series 7 post-game chatter. Uh, we have just finished recording the finale for uh, Series 7. It was intense, uh, and uh, we took about five minutes to, to like refresh our drinks and sat back down, and now we're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about the last episode, the series as a whole, and um, uh, the system and how we feel about the system. First thing I think uh, that we should get into is obviously uh, because of all the you know, because of time constraints and everything, we went ahead and, and ended the story kind of on like a, a, a smash cut to credits, you know, uh, leave leave the audience hanging uh, type uh, uh, finale. Right. Uh, we we open up the tomb of Ecarilla and then it's like and then it's like and done. You know, roll yeah. credits um, silhouetted against the bright mists, <laughs> which is kind of a, 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 unlike any other series we've had where uh, where we usually like take the time to walk through like what happens to all of the characters afterwards. Now, obviously none of us know what is inside the tomb of Vecarilla. It could be a, a world full of horrors. It's probably nothing. We know one thing. It's really interesting. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> uh, um, uh, but, uh, uh, 
uh, I think it'd be fun if we went around uh, the table really quick and assuming that, you know, the tomb had like some cool artifacts or whatever. And then we, you know, left the tomb and went out back into the wider world of Thea, uh, what we think our characters would get into. Um, but before we do that, uh, we should uh, go around the table really quick, uh, talking as best we can in our normal voices uh, and uh, let the audience know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> My name is Bastian. Uh, uh, and let the audience know uh, uh, who we are and what we sound like and who we played. So uh, I am Tommy. You've heard me a whole lot in Words with the GM. I played Bastian Corazon. I'm Sean. I played Matteo de Caligari. I'm Addie. I was the GM. I'm Nick. I played uh, Captain Kirill Tikvintimovich. I am Seth. <coughs> I'm Seth, <laughs> and I play Gutbrand's friend. The Vela Gutbrand is here. <laughs> so, uh, does anyone want to have like a good idea, like uh, off the top of their head, what they think their their characters got into? Assuming we uh, escaped the tomb of Akirilla. <laughs> I know Mateo's big thing was like kind of looking for a family, like kind of the whole time. And after finding his father, I feel like he would uh, attend. Hopefully the the happy wedding of Amboise and um, Caroline um, get kind of wistful. Uh, probably go uh, return to uh, Vodachi, uh, and I think he would try to smuggle his mother out of Vodachi and go visit ashore Ooh. and meet his and meet his uh, Asherite family, uh, as he's never been to the Crescent Empire and would probably like to go now that uh, he's seen the Green Mountain. Yeah, yeah, you got <laughs> you have Asherite magic now. You better go there. Yeah, better see what's going on. <laughs> I had no plan for Good Ren because, quite honestly, he was not supposed to make it through that last episode. <laughs> um, but with that in mind, I think uh, him knowing the 13th rune and nobody else is really dangerous. Uh, so probably what he would do is he uh, uh, would go to the Seekers and basically uh, retire as like a police force for the Futhark. And he would just go full time ship's wizard with Kirill um, and basically just like keep himself away from the temptations of, of, of the seekers uh, as much as possible. And uh, possibly if uh, Kirill is at all interested in a, in a more legitimate business venture, uh, start a merchant fleet and uh, kind of partner up with his father. Oh, that'd be pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. Kirill would definitely just like to get out from underground back on the water. <laughs> <laughs> awesome ships wizard would be fantastic for sure. And yeah, anything that keeps uh, adventure and fighting up. Yeah. Whether it's with a smuggler's crew or with a merchant guild. Yeah. Any, anywhere there's high seas fighting to be had. Uh, yeah. Ba Bastion's whole thing was uh, always as a, uh, the goal was to uh, master his, his, uh, his technique, create his own dueling style. And then finally, uh, after uh, like 20 plus years of wandering the world and, and training with multiple duelists, uh, move back home to Odysseus instead of visiting it once a year for the festival, uh, and, uh, found his own dueling Academy there, uh, which is, uh, what he would probably move to do. I feel like he and Isabel would probably make a go of it for a little bit. 
and then eventually some she'd like disappear or whatever and and like every once in a while we would cross paths but like you know never fully commit <laughs> at least until we're like old enough that like we can't really duel anymore an adventure <laughs> anymore and then it's finally like all right let's fucking settle down for what, once what's the special maneuver of the Corazon Dueling Academy. I actually like the idea that the special maneuver of the Corazon Dueling style uh, is to mimic the special maneuver of your opponent. Ooh, nice. Nice. Yeah. The old Corazon copycat. Anything you can do, I can do better. (laughs) (laughs) And it would become renowned across there because my bones told me so. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And you, you wouldn't be able to resist, like, Spreading the knowledge. Spreading yeah, oh, the word. <laughs> <laughs> that last episode was a weird one for me because I, I decided as Bastion that I was going to make it more important to him to uh, save Isabel than to rush in and fight. I didn't actually think I was going to be out of the fight the entire right. fucking time. Well, you didn't. You didn't account for Kirill. Perhaps it does speak to one of the strengths of the system that in this final fight, this boss battle, we were all doing wildly different things yeah Yeah. like uh bastian was on a stealth mission uh mateo was kind of doing like his academic thing uh uh, was barding so hard uh and carol was uh getting that flair (laughs) brawn and brawl brawn and brawl punch 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 Uh, as far as everyone's experience with 7c addy and Oh, really, Addy, myself, Sean, and Nick have played it a great deal. Uh, Addy and I just a little bit more than Sean and Nick um, uh, because we played so many play tests of this campaign uh, to try and understand the system to the best of our ability before we went into the podcast. Uh, Seth had never played 7C. Uh, until uh, until this campaign. Yeah, uh, previous to episode one, there was just the three... Uh, episodes of session zero that never got released um uh set that was seth's only uh uh precursor to this system uh so uh what is what does everyone uh uh think about the system in general what do they like what what feels weird uh uh, anything anyone got like anything they want to throw out right away i really like the uh the whole combine a trait with a skill thing it's it seems like you just have so many more options than uh you know like roll your constitution or or something like that and i thought that was really neat and it makes you uh sort of plan ahead and try to come up with yeah just different ways to to tackle a situation to combine you know maybe traits that you haven't combined before like the flare encourages that too so it really does keep everything pretty dynamic yeah or interesting ways to play to your own strengths like yeah. Every time Matteo rolled like wits and scholarship, like in a battle sequence, like, you know, he had to like find like an interesting way for him to be you like achieving things while just using smarts. And uh, yeah, and and wits and scholarships are two things that they 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 go together really well. But like, it's, if you're trying to do like panache and and tempt, like depending on the situation, like it's, panache and tempt is totally different from wits and tempt, from finesse and tempt. Like yeah. one, your all of your skills, uh, it's the combination of them that um, makes it interesting. Because when you just have you know the things that you roll, you get it, you kind of get into a rut. You uh, sometimes end up, or at least maybe that's just me. 
you kind of end up doing the same thing over and over again. Uh, whereas if you combine your trait with your skill, you can do a completely different thing and you're still using that same skill. And I like that a lot. Uh, on the note of dramatic sequences, it's a pretty common theme that the thing I love in RPGs are like when uh, the collaborators, the GM and the players can choose what's important to them. When the GM gives you a bunch of consequences uh, and opportunities and you, the players, know for a fact you don't have the raises to do them all, you really prioritize as a table and figure out uh, which of these things you're really okay with letting go and which of these things like you want to devote your resources to achieving. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like that happens in, uh, in the, at the end of the festival of swords, when we realized we didn't have enough for all of us to escape. And, and it was like, either we all escape or we do commit to unmasking Marcel completely and proving that he is a villain. And, uh, like we, as a table decided one of us is getting left behind. Yeah. (laughs) But, uh, uh, there, there's a lot of like inherent struggles with, with that, uh, with that dynamic that seven C puts out. Out, um, which I imagine Addy could speak to pretty well as the game runner. I know we've we've mentioned it before in words with the GM about like how consequences and opportunities are can be very difficult to come up with. Uh, but there's just a whole lot more on there too, right? Yeah, I'm tired. Yeah. <laughs> there's a, a an art and a skill to GMing proficiently uh, for for seven C coming up with opportunities and consequences on a regular basis on top of managing like multiple brute squads and their abilities and then what the players stories are and what their hubris is and then what you can spend danger points on and when to spend danger points and uh it's this um crazy symphony of things that you can do and you're literally uh, the conductor, but the timpani is just like doing its own thing. And so you're always changing, uh, trying to keep the meter the same and the pacing really nice. It's a lot to juggle and uh, it's worth it uh, to tell the story, especially because it's one of the rare opportunities where um, as a GM, you're less telling, you're you're providing the framework for the story, but the, the, the players are really driving the narrative. And I think that's really interesting and important. More than Almost any other system I've played, I feel like 7C is a game of skill where you are managing resources and numbers and and, and raises and stories. Mm. Um, that resource management, like, you can play optimally. There are, like, optimal ways to play 7C uh, to, like, maximize your effect and, like, build your and, like, optimize your character. And the GM has to do that tenfold or more. Yeah. Uh, 7C is a game that I think, unlike most games, it really feels like a game where the game benefits from everyone at the table knowing all of the rules of the game. Yeah. Like, villains are comprised of two stats, uh, strength and influence. And uh, while they have an influence stat, um, they cannot be killed. And uh, you have to, like, lower their influence at, like, unmasking Marcel and, like, making the town revolt against mm-hmm. him. Like, that made his influence stat go down to zero. Uh, and then since it was at zero, we were able to, like, defeat him yeah. and just, like, fight his strength, which was really low because he's yeah. a professor. <laughs> um, uh, but, uh, uh, like, if you don't know that as a player, like, you, you like, might feel like you're, like, going through all these extraneous steps which are cool and narrative but you're like also like well why don't we just fight him now why don't we just fight him now and it's like because we actually can't Can't. (laughs) if you if you kill a villain while it still has influence you get corruption 
because he has like plots and stuff going on. You don't know, you know, fully what's going on. So people get hurt because you were, you know, too reckless and, and bloodthirsty. Yeah. Uh, another example of that for me is, uh, skills. Um, and I'm sure I knew this at the beginning of the, the campaign, but, uh, I usually, generally, when I'm playing an RPG, don't think about uh, leveling up skills as the important thing. I'm really into shit like advantages and like doing cool things. But that bit me in the ass in the later episodes because I had no skills that were uh, rank four, where sets of 15 count as two raises. So here's fucking Kirill with 18 raises, and I'm over here like, oh, I got five. I guess I'll just hang out. And if if I'd have like... Like, kept that in mind the entire time. I think I would have had a more ra- rounded character at the end of the campaign. Yeah. Initiative is really punishing for yeah. non-combat characters. I, I, I think the thing is, it's like with with this system because it's a system that requires the players and the GM to know the rules so well. Mm-hmm. You have stuff like that. Like you have you are punished uh, pretty heavily by the mechanics of the system if you if you don't make the the choice that plays into the way the system is designed. Right. Uh, which leads me into one of the uh, the greatest weaknesses of 7C, I believe, um, uh, which is uh, uh, the structure of the rule books. Like I said, we we ran so many playtest sessions of this before we sat down and played. We still made tons of mistakes. And part of that, I think, is um, just due to the way that the rule book is, is structured. I know when we first real read through it we understood how each individual piece of the game worked we understood how raises worked we understood how dueling worked we understood how the different magics worked but like what feels like is is missing a little bit in the rule book is a comprehensive like unifying like okay now this is how all of these pieces go together and make a functional game like it wasn't until we went to gen con and, and played it there uh and like played it at someone's table and saw them playing it that we were like we've seen it in action now we know how it's how it's done yes <laughs> Um, and that's, I think, why there's such a big demand for things like this actual play for 7C is because uh, so many people out there uh, want to know, like, how all these cool pieces of a, of a system really mesh together to make a, make a fully fledged uh, RPG. You can read the core book and create a really cool character. And you're like, I want to play this character. This character feels really neat. And then when you sit down at a table to play, you're like, oh, how do I do this? Um, yeah. And uh, it's uh, it feels complex because the rule book could certainly be clearer. It's a complex system, but understanding how it works isn't a complex thought. And I think that um, things like um, initiative or... Uh, the importance of skills uh, are all things that could be like really aggravating in play if you're really not sure how it works and you're not doing it right. I think with 7C in particular, like listening to our podcast um, or any other podcast that is like live 7C, um, as long as they're doing it right, like we hopefully did. Uh, <laughs> I think we're like at 80% at least. <laughs> uh, is uh, is really, really useful. Yeah, I, I think as a, a new character, I wish I had like at least six months of trial and error. <laughs> 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 but like if I was going to 
specifically play a Scald Vala character again, I would have an Arcana that would be getting me hero points basically any time I wanted them. I would have gotten probably like seven Galder. I, I got a couple of cool advantages. I just, I never used them because I was so focused on being a Scald Vala. At the, at the very beginning, I realized I was just shooting things with my bow and I'm like, I didn't make a fucking archer. I made a mystic character. <laughs> yeah, the hero point economy is kind of tricky, but Mateo figured it out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I do. I admit I I did have some. I had about six months of trial and error figuring this game out, and um, I built a character that verges on broken. I think like near the end of the campaign, I looked at this character sheet and was like, if I was handed this character sheet at the beginning of the game, I'd be like, fuck, <laughs> this character is incredible at what he does. Probably my one um, caution to to people who are, who are playing Seven C is that the game can be a little adversarial. It's very structured. Uh, there, there are a lot of rules. Uh, there are a lot of restrictions placed on the players and the GM. Uh, and it a lot of times feels like uh, you're playing the game against each other. Mm. And mm. like, uh, I think like as long as you can like kind of overcome that and, and like recognize that like we're all here to make a story together, um, that like you can you can harness seven C and tell a great story. Yeah, you can get some really cool shit out of this system. I think now we should do our traditional go around the table uh, and ask um, uh, everybody uh, here: uh, Would you play seven C again? And if you want to like qualify, yes, why yes or no? Uh, do so. Who wants to, who wants to go? Huh? 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 I I, I want to say no just because of the difficulty I had, especially uh, figuring out the things for my character to do in dramatic and action sequences. But I also really want to make a character that I can use in those. Like I, I want, I want to fix the problems that I, that I made for myself, you know? So you're, you're tempted to go in and, and you're like, give me, give me another shot. Yeah. Yeah, like, exactly. Put me, Put me a couch. couch. <laughs> I would play it again with like a couple big asterisks. Number one, like I'd have to play with an experienced uh, GM again. And I pr- probably prefer to do, a more intrigue style game. Those, those were really my favorite parts of the podcast was just sort of our investigations and, you know, infiltrating auctions and balls like those, those seem to play a lot faster and be a lot more fun. Uh, what about you, Addy? I've only played one time. And that was a Gen Con. Yeah. <laughs> that was a Gen Con for two hours. I would be interested in playing at somebody else's table. But if asking the question right this very moment, right as we've ended, <laughs> and yeah. you're very tired, and I am very tired, uh, I would I would like to play. I think it would be fun to create a character and have only them to manage. <laughs> um, but but as for running, I think I'm like hanging up my seven C hat for a while. <laughs> I'm with Nick and Addy. Um, I had a lot of fun in the intrigue. I'm really glad I played. I had a really good time. Uh, I think I've got what I needed from 7C for the time being. <laughs> yeah, after six months of trial and error, you found your perfect character. <laughs> my, my itch is scratched. Uh, I, I, I think I can hang it up for a while. As for me, I, I have a, a few conflicting feelings about uh, 7C. I, I really like the things the system lets you achieve like you can achieve in this system that you can't achieve in others uh because of the way dramatic sequences and action sequences work like there are times when 7c clicks and just fucking cool shit happens that's just like super cool that like you don't think you could achieve in another system without like really really like 
trying uh, and like backing away from the mechanics of said system. Uh, sometimes the mechanics of this system just make like for really interesting narrative moments, like getting uh, Matteo captured. Like if we were in D and D, we just all would have escaped that. We would have just yeah. we would have uh, all escaped or all gotten captured. But because uh, uh, the way dramatic sequences work, and we only had so many resources to spend on the things we wanted to do, uh, it was like it was interesting for us to like collectively decide. Cool, one of us is getting captured, and like and like watching that like change the story because of the decision we made. And uh, that's like not something you can find in other systems. Um, on the other hand, uh, when the system doesn't click, um, when when every when everything isn't executed like flawlessly, uh, you you like run into like the adversarial nature of it, or like the way that like if you if you make the wrong decision at the wrong time, like you're punished pretty heavily for it. That kind of thing. I I definitely would play it again. I like this system. It's a system that is hard for me to recommend. I think I'd also be interested in running 7C only because uh, uh, I've always had a weak spot for systems that require you to spin a lot of plates as a GM. <laughs> um, Tommy, what, are you referring to something? Is there a system you have in mind? Oh, uh, you know, I just, <laughs> I, I'm seeing I'm seeing something. It's it's a bunch of D6s. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I love Shadowrun. Uh, for whatever reason, that fits my GM style pretty well. Uh, I don't know maybe i'm just like super scatterbrained or something and so like <laughs> um uh but like i i feel like uh i w- i might be interested in running it i i would be nervous to do it but uh i think i would do it uh if uh, if like a, a group came up and was like yeah we want to play 7c but i think that's enough uh chatter about the system the campaign and everything uh we have questions from the listeners we need to get to yes. uh so uh we're gonna go ahead and move on into questions from the listeners so uh, we actually got quite a few questions, uh, and some of them are the same or similar. So we've bunched those into a, a couple of groups, and we're going to answer those all at once. Uh, Joseph asked, uh, I know some stuff is cut for the episodes, but how much extra discussion of the game or plot goes on outside of the table and in between sessions? Tom asked, how much of an episode winds up on the cutting room floor? And Mark asks, how long does it take to do the editing? How much of your recording do you cut out before we listen to it? And how was the how was editing this system compared to the others? So lots of questions about editing. Uh, yeah. So I've talked a little bit about this in other post game chatters. Um, we do cut a lot of side conversations, moments where we, uh, look up rules that we've forgotten, um, or flat out just the times where we roll dice and kind of take forever, like counting them and figuring out what it is. We streamline all that for narrative purposes. And then when you take into account like combat sequences and stuff like that, you know, there's a lot of bookkeeping that goes on around it. And uh, ultimately, uh, it varies from system to system, but we never cut out any narrative content. We never cut out anything that's done necessarily in character. Uh, Depending on the system, we might get more table chatter than others, uh, but ultimately it stays relatively the same across most systems. Um, It's kind of interesting the way it falls uh, falls into place, though. Like if you if like you take like Dungeons and Dragons and Shadowrun uh, and you compare like the raw content of those combat sequences once i cut them down it's usually the same ratio that ends up being the same uh the difference is the shadow run combat sequences just flat out take longer because there's a lot more to it you know you have to roll a lot more times to hit and dodge and stuff um so those combat sequences end up being longer for shadow run but the percentage that gets trimmed away for the sake of the narrative uh stays about the same and 
weirdly enough, it's the same in 7C, uh, though the strange thing is most of that content gets cut at the beginning of those sequences. Uh, in 7C, uh, uh, we'd have like a long combat sequence and the percentage that gets cut out is roughly about the same as any other RPG system. However, most of that cutting happens right at the beginning because we like say all our approaches and then there's a large period of time where Addie is figuring out the consequences based on our approaches and then she uh, she presents them and then we compare like notes and decide like do we want to spend hero points stuff like that and then we do that and then we roll and then we get all of our dice in order and then after that the combat actually flows super quickly uh, everyone knows what they want to do they know how they're going to spend their raises and there's very little downtime in between people taking their actions in combat once you get all the bookkeeping out of the way at the beginning unlike other systems where the, the content or where all the bookkeeping happens kind of in between each action but uh you can rest assured that uh there's never any anything that i trim away that uh is like a character decision or like a path like we don't go on like a side quest and then i delete that out of the episode we keep that stuff in we we don't like talk to an NPC and then i just remove that scene anything that happens like in the story remains which isn't to say that you don't cut out some of the most fun stuff, but sometimes it just doesn't fit in, which is well, fair. Yeah, if there's a, if there's a joke that that uh, is less in character and more <laughs> and and more just like a oh this is a funny joke I thought of I'm gonna say it in my character's voice I'll put that in the bloops. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, our second batch of questions, uh, we have uh, Robin who asked, how do you guys stay in character voice every episode and how do you choose the voice for your character and do you practice before recording? Uh, and Tom asks, how do all of you practice your accents? Any tips? He also goes on to mention that it's really, really odd to hear any of us slip out of character during an episode. <laughs> I fucking love accents. I was a theater graduate, so like there was an entire class dedicated to it, so I got to learn a lot of the specific about like why an accent is the way it is and how it forms in in a person's mouth uh in terms of preparation uh basically Vestim and Avignar is the same thing as uh as like Norway in the Scandinavian area so on Nick's uh suggestion I watched a lot of Norsemen and I like <laughs> binged the entire season it's and so was like good. it's really funny yeah yeah and it would also kind of fit in with uh, what we were trying to do uh so yeah I just like listened to that a whole bunch uh and in order to like get into that honestly to get into any accent I usually find like one phrase or set of words that I can just like say immediately and then that usually pulls me along for the rest of it my background is in theater and linguistics, so doing <laughs> accents is like kind of what I do for me. I absolutely did practice to get Mateo, uh, and what I used is a resource called IDEA, the International Dialects of English Archive, and I literally listened to people with Italian accents and like and mimicked them, and that's how I do accents like uh, for my work, and that's how I do it for the podcast too. <laughs> I am not a professional, <laughs> so instead I chose a character based on an accent I thought I could do, <laughs> and it, it worked out all right. I was happy with it. Uh, yeah, I have to second the uh, the watching like movies and stuff with accents like that uh, to to get Bastion's voice. It was a little out of my out of my comfort range, uh, but I I watched a lot of Antonio Banderas movies, <laughs> and then also um, ended up watching Ro uh, Star Wars Rogue One multiple times because Cassian Andor has like exactly the kind of accent I was I was hoping to emulate. Usually what I do is I, I watch those uh, films that have the 
the accent I'm trying to do. And then I talk to myself in that accent whenever I have the opportunity, walking to and from work, just sitting there trying to say things both that my character would say in character, like, you know, like challenging someone to a duel or something like that, but also practicing saying the mechanics of the game. Like I'd say, I want to use this advantage. I want to spend my raise on this. I'd like to, you know, spend a hero point for blah, 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 because sometimes it can be hard to talk about a game mechanic in character. Mm -hmm. So I practice that a lot, too. For me, I uh, read things that like don't make sense, like the backs of shampoo bottles in <laughs> accents. Um, when I don't have anything else to do, I'll, there, I'll read the French and then I'll read the English in a French accent and then I'll read the Spanish ing- ingredient list. Basically, uh, switching is really, for me, the hardest part which I had to do a lot. So that was really fun. Yeah. So many accents in this for the GM. Yeah. Uh, which you don't have to do if you run this game. That that, <laughs> that leads to like uh, something we've said in, in previous uh, post-game chatters when this question's come up. Uh, it's worth echoing. You shouldn't have to feel like you have to do an accent. Um, and then also uh, you shouldn't feel embarrassed to do an accent. Um, uh, we've always at our tables tried to like support people like struggling through accents and mm-hmm. let, and like, you know, we don't let it like bog down our play being like, oh, sorry, I sound so stupid. And, like, no, just go with it, man. Just do it. It doesn't matter. Well, that That's something I liked about this world is that yeah. maybe my Russian accent wasn't great, but my Asuran accent is just yeah. flawless. That's just what Asuran yeah. sounds like. perfect. Yeah. <laughs> and our uh, final batch of questions uh, that we have is... Riley asks, your intro remains, we play some of the best and possibly some of the worst uh, tabletop RPGs. So far, I haven't really seen any of the games you've posted be things I would call some of the worst. What are the games you would consider to be some of the worst that you've thought about doing and decided that they are the worst. Um, And then Joseph asks, concerning ENPC's tagline, would you ever plan on committing to possibly the worst kinds of tabletop RPGs? It doesn't seem like you've disliked any of the systems so far. I think the key word in the strap line is that it's possibly some of the worst. Uh, We did that specifically because... Honestly, the quality of an RPG is purely subjective. Uh, What some people might really like, other people might hate. I mean, you can look at actually uh, Dungeons & Dragons and Pathfinder as a great example because there are people who love Dungeons & Dragons and hate Pathfinder and people who love Pathfinder and hate Dungeons & Dragons. And relatively, they exist in very similar worlds. They're very like high fantasy. You're playing some of the same classes. They're both D20 systems, but one works in a way that a lot of people like, and one works in a way that a lot of other people like. That doesn't make either one of them the worst necessarily. It just makes them the worst to some people. (laughs) And uh, we're not necessarily against committing to doing a season of quote unquote, possibly some of the worst, but we don't know what those are because we always have a great time playing. So, uh, if you'd like, you can send us, um, on our social media, uh, some of the systems that you would like us to play in a, uh, some of the worst season. Yeah. If we get enough of them, maybe we'll make a short series where we play through a bunch of terrible systems. (laughs) (laughs) So into the individual questions, um, uh, Gordon asks his typical questions of the of each series. We get to hear Tommy and Addie's favorite moments throughout the series. But what are some of the favorite moments of the rest of the cast? I prepared for this. Oh, shit. I thought about one. I think it was like when we left Numa 
and Matteo had found a book that he was having trouble decoding, and Goodbrand had found a, a ledger that he has was having trouble decoding, or the opposite. I don't remember. And yeah, the scene was just set up so well, and they were both like figuring things out on opposite ends of the iceberg, and then they like met in the middle, and you know, oh, chocolate in my peanut butter, peanut butter, chocolate. This is great. <laughs> and they turned to Addy, and Addy just was like, no. <laughs> and I loved it because sometimes. Sometimes not yes ending is funny. <laughs> I think Sean called it like the perfect meet cute or something. Yeah. It was, yeah. And it was wonderful. I will always have a special place in my heart for uh, Caroline Goodbrand and uh, Mateo standing outside the Dugula's Guild, listening to the birds and looking at the clouds on a beautiful day with a dark mood over all of them. <laughs> Just like emo Mateo. Uh, I, I, I could go on. There are a lot of great Goodbrand moments that I could go on, but I'll leave it at that Good for Brand's now. Goodbrand's my favorite moment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was, uh, that's definitely also one of my all-time favorites. Uh, I also really like the entire building of Goodbrand and uh, Captain Kirill's relationship. There's just like a lot of little linchpin moments where uh, our entire characters are just kind of like, oh, they're getting a little closer. Oh, they're cool. Oh, they're going to be partners. Oh, this is a lot of fun to watch. Uh, honestly, every every single time Goodbrand and, and Kirill have a moment, I'm all about it. Two huge dudes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Gordon also asks, if you could play a different character that was in this series, which character would you play? Uh, I'd play. I'd probably play Lockham and Grep. <laughs> Jointly, they're Jointly. one character. Yeah, yeah. ice climbers <laughs> stacked up on top of each other in a trench coat. You know, the whole the whole classic deal. You said you had some frustrations with the build. So if I could edit it slightly, I would totally like to try Good Brand. Yes. Um, yeah, just because magic does seem really cool, and so yeah, if you could set it up in a way where you could use it more often, I think that'd be a really fun one to do. I remember at the beginning of the series, there was a little bit of like, oh, oh who's going to who's going to take the character with the Russian accent? <laughs> <laughs> so I would de- I would definitely play Kirill uh, out of uh, out of these characters. I would have. I, although I doubt I could do it the same justice that Nick did. I'd probably actually go with probably Roland <laughs> Blackwell. Uh, yeah. Uh, he was a ton of fun. And I know he's like basically like a mirror image of Bastion. So it's not like a huge <laughs> leap, but like I, I only wrote like a couple notes about him and Addy just like played him so yeah. well that uh, it, it really like made me be like, man, I should have played that guy. <laughs> uh, so our next question comes from Irie. This might get answered in episode 20, but if it doesn't, what was the 13th rune? Was it a homebrew or are the rule are there rules somewhere for it? Yeah, I guess we can kind of I don't have the sheet. I wish <laughs> I did. Uh, I liked I liked how the 13th rune turned out. It was very clearly an Addy homebrew. What so what were the the like specifics of it? Um so the Stort Merca could do a couple of things. Most of them having to do with uh the manipulation of life. So uh, using it instantly gained the the user a uh, point of corruption um, unless they used it on themselves because you could take the life from someone, another living being, and give it to another person either after they've been they passed away or um, to heal somebody back to sort of full health, taking away all of their dramatic wounds and... And killing someone in the process. And killing someone in the process. Yeah. Uh, you know, the answer to life, death, and everything. Hmm. Um, and uh, the Latet Merka was the knowledge part of um, the, the 
promise of Ecarilla, which uh, you could ask a question, any question of uh, the GM, and they would answer. Not just like a yes, no, maybe, but like a full answer. Uh, the thing was is that you couldn't share it without uh, right. without a, without some real punishment coming down. <laughs> so uh, the person who knew the 13th rune had the power over life and death and also had all of the answers and all of that was a very double-edged sword. Yeah, right. And that was that was part of the reason that uh, I really expected um, Goodbrand to die is because <laughs> like, I figured somebody, probably, uh, probably Bastion, but somebody during the final battle would be mortally wounded and then I could just like give my life for theirs and it'd be a nice wonderful tragic moment and we'd all cry about it and then <laughs> and that'd be the end but instead we just we just fucking dunked it yeah <laughs> <laughs> fucking nailed it uh our next question comes from ryan uh were the little cups of coffee something that was made up on the spot it does seem like the entire cast is great at making up details like that <laughs> yeah, I will always say that the little cups of coffee were the essential NPC of this series. <laughs> uh, yeah, they were just, I was like, what do you drink in Greece other than Uzo? I guess it's espresso? <laughs> Greek know. espresso. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it was great because then Nick and uh, uh, Seth immediately were like, what the fuck is this? Like, they actually, they, you know, they didn't know what espresso was. And yeah. It's hilarious. We're both playing characters who are like 10 feet tall. <laughs> so just the image of the tiny little cups of espresso was. Also, the two great. of us in our brunch squad was right? probably yeah. my it, favorite it, thing. It spurs into this whole theme throughout <laughs> the entire podcast where you guys like going out to meals and local cuisine. It's so great. <laughs> so. We got an email from someone's Google who insists their name is Nunya Business. Um, yeah, I would legally change my name to that. That's actually yeah. really solid. First name Nunya. Last name Business, 100%. <laughs> what is your favorite forms of alchemy slash chemistry throughout any and all RPG systems? Well, I did GM Series 4 Tefra. Uh, and Tefra is, you know, a steampunk RPG. And so there's a pretty robu robust uh, uh, crafting system. It's like half of the rules of that game is crafting. Uh, and one of the one of the sections of crafting, of course, is uh, alchemy. And uh, there's some pretty cool things you can do with it. And then another another aspect is the is like the chemistry of like bio manipulation, which uh, if Dan were here, uh, he'd point out the fact that, you know, Tefra actually early in the rule book says you can't be a wizard because it's steampunk but then they sl they slip in there right at the end with the uh, with the bio zapper and the and the alchemy that's like no nah, you can be a wizard <laughs> you can be a wizard in this system you can shoot like lightning out your fingers it's all good yeah. the reason i think tefra uh, understandably has like the the most like fleshed out alchemy rules I've seen is because uh, you know the setting right they had to nail it and they they kind of did it's one of the one of the most uh, or one of the coolest unique things about the Tefra system uh, I think this is the second time I mentioned Blades on the Dark and on the podcast <laughs> but there's uh, there's actually a really cool like there's a uh, cool stuff that's in the book for Blades in the Dark on alchemy but the kind of homebrew alchemy is actually like it's like a two-way interview between the player and the GM 
where the uh, GM asks, what does this do? And then the player asks, what are the drawbacks? Hmm. And like the <laughs> and like the GM is like, what do you have to sacrifice to make this? And then the player is like, oh, like and, and like you, you in a in conversation, you can develop a drug that does anything. I'm actually running a game for a crew of drug dealers yeah. <laughs> who are selling spooky ghost drugs. So I, I've been enjoying the uh, the Blades in the Dark alchemy system. Our next question comes uh, came through Twitter from at Enduni. What do you think are the trade-offs of dramatic scenes versus the normal Dungeons and Dragons style of resolving non-combat conflicts? Are the constraints worth it? You know, I don't feel like with this system especially there are drawbacks. I actually kind of like the way that the rules work out because it gives you kind of a structure to work off of with non-combat. Yeah. Uh, with this, you actually have rules. You actually have like things that you're trying to achieve and uh, consequences if you don't achieve it so I, I i like the way that this is set up like in some games you know i've just been like stuck in a dungeon and if you don't investigate the right window like you're just <laughs> kind of stuck there twiddling your thumbs for a while and i think a strength of dramatic sequences which is probably my favorite part of 7c is that you know you don't know what's behind that door but you know that it takes this many raises to accomplish it so you kind of get a sense of uh, whether or not it's it's worth going for and you don't have to just roll perception constantly yeah and it's not a series of pass fail gates like it is mm. in D. &D. it's like mm. a fill all these uh, uh buckets <laughs> of different sizes and then see what's behind it so i would actually say that uh the there aren't really constraints you could have a dramatic sequence be presented with a ton of opportunities and consequences and decide to create your own answers um, instead uh, and ignore everything the GM says. I like the, the idea of dramatic sequences mostly because as a GM, it allowed me to be like, I would like you to go this way, or I'd like this to be really hard. So you guys got to really want to do this because this is going to be hard for me. I find dramatic sequences and and action sequences like a be a better way to communicate with your players even with the added bookkeeping and the little fatigue that goes along with that uh, our next question comes from joseph how do you all know each other and what advice do you have for getting the kind of table table chemistry y'all share <laughs> to, to address the second part of the question uh right out the gate it, it's uh playing a bunch of games with each other yeah. um uh we've we've played tons of different rpgs with each other um and we luckily found people to play rpgs with that play role-playing games for the same reasons we do mm -hmm. um uh, we're all very interested in the narrative. You know, we have our own like different approaches to that, but like ultimately we're all trying to tell like an interesting story together without like stepping on each other's toes. We're all trying to collaborate on it. You know, we never saw it as like a, uh, every man for himself type thing. We've always saw, seen it as like GMs and players all working with each other to, uh, to push the story in a fun direction. Uh, and I think how, how to establish that is when you sit down at the table for the first time, uh, you come up with the player con contract of like, what do you guys want from this like RPG campaign? You know, how do you want to go about it? Do you want to have PVP? Do you want it to be narrative focused? Do you guys love the math of combat? Um, and having everybody like upfront be like, this is how I like to RPG. Can we manage this is really useful. Um, RPGs are all about communicating. So like communicate when something doesn't feel as good as you were hoping. I, I would say there are also like three rules of like improv that I think we are really good at 
at ENPCs, and that's well, we trust each other, uh, we say yes to each other, and we strive to make the other people at the table look good. Mm. We set each other up for success. And as far as how we know each other, um, Sean and I actually work at a game store together. Nick is uh, is a pillar of the community who's uh, who's helped us with a bunch of different events. So he's kind of like a pseudo employee of that job. And uh, and Addie, her and I uh, met uh, when she was just a patron there. And and uh, we've been together uh, for a few years now. And uh, uh, Seth fell into this group uh, uh, through his uh, his connection with me. We actually grew up in the same town and, yeah. and uh, uh, did like summer youth theater together. <laughs> and uh, he, he actually moved away for a while and then eventually uh, uh, moved back to or, and eventually moved to Chicago, and uh, I immediately reeled him in because I knew he'd be a ton of fun to play with. Yeah, what we've known each other what thirteen years now, or something like that. Yeah, probably maybe, longer. Maybe longer. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Our next set of questions come from Jim. Uh, first up, a question for Addy. Uh, can you talk about developing extended sequences where one player is the focus, like the Festival of Swords duels for Bastion? How can I give one player an extended bit of focus without losing the attention of the rest of the table? So this is a really interesting question because the Festival of Swords wasn't supposed to be as extended as it was. Um, I knew that it was an important character moment, and so I definitely wanted it to happen. And there wasn't necessarily a whole lot planned for uh the uh rest of the table mostly because i didn't know if they were just gonna go do like fun cheerleading stuff like yeah bastion um or exactly what they wanted to achieve and uh what happened was everybody found a whole lot to do and so i actually ended up extending the festival of swords because of everyone else's activities uh so while it seems like i had this like giant plan for uh for bastion instead it was actually uh me sort of like stretching uh the festival of swords to let everyone else accomplish what they had started without dropping tommy out of of the of the episodes yeah a lot of times your players can find stuff that they want uh to do while someone else is on their own own special thing, things they want to do in the background. And a lot of times it just comes down to paying attention to what the other characters focus on as like what they want to do on the side and then not ignoring that and expanding on it. And the other thing is, is that some players really like to watch other players play, um, you know, kind of like you'd watch a TV show or something. Um, and so uh, I always allow my players like, Okay, this cool thing happens with this one character. What are you guys? What is? What are the rest of you doing? Oh, I'm watching. Okay, cool. Then we're not going to touch on you for a little bit. Uh, <laughs> let's move on. Um, yeah. And and I think that's really just what it is. Give like every like milestone for the character. Give the other characters a chance to be like, hey, I'm doing a thing too. Uh, Jim's next question is for the group. How did you develop the relationships that existed in the backstory prior to episode one, particularly Bastion and Goodbrand? And then Mateo and Kirill. So Tommy and I decided pretty early on uh, that we wanted our characters to be brothers. And so mm -hmm. our original idea was to do Numenari brothers. And he'd be like the fighting Numenari dude. And I'd be the mystic Numenari dude. So I really got into like the magic that was associated with him. And then I think at some point down the line, I think Tommy decided he didn't want to be Numenari. Is that yeah. right? It was, uh, it was, there were a lot of factors in it. But uh, one thing we realized, actually, uh, I was having trouble fleshing out the character's personality. I had a really cool stat block, but I mm -hmm. couldn't... I was 
wasn't inspired about the character's personality. And then on top of that, we didn't actually have like a proper duelist. Right. Uh, and I thought like that was, you know, kind of a mistake for like showcasing 7C not to have a, an actual duelist. So then I leaned super friggin' hard <laughs> into dueling. <Yeah. laughs> I made it like, what if I just focus entirely on dueling? <laughs> uh, and so then I went with the Castilian, right. but we never wanted to lose that kind of brotherly history. Right. Uh, and so then when you, you, uh, you jumped off of Numenari into Vestin, we still found a way to kind of like make our characters this like fun, like a uh, martial and mystic brother duo. Right. Yeah, exactly. And I, I went to uh, Vestin because Nick had been considering a Vestin uh, character, which is the reason that I had shied away from it before. And then he went to Surin. And I was like, yeah, I'll do that accent. That sounds like a lot of fun. <laughs> I don't actually remember <laughs> so much. Yeah. I think it would just sort of organically came from like the whole table's decision. Like, okay, we want to do like a sort of treasure hunting campaign. Sean and I came up with like who we wanted and then we just sort of told each other that and came up with a way that they would have met. Yeah, I, I think it came out of the fact that like uh, because Tommy and Seth had this kind of pair that had a shared history, uh, we thought if we all like so we also had a pair that had a bit of a shared history so that we could like link up. And then uh, I think we were both all connected by the Explorer Society. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, a couple of things audible and, and changed around. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it just it just fit together that like, you know, the smuggler and the the son of the artifact hoarding merchant prince would probably get along. Yeah. And the thing that happens at the beginning beginning of almost every campaign we run that kind of leads to stuff like this is uh, whoever's running the game usually asks like, okay, how do you all know each other from before, if at all? And then that usually spurs on a conversation where like sometimes it just falls into place naturally. Yeah. Uh, so our next questions uh, come from Tom. Uh, this one is for me. Do you have a method for the way you assign required raises for goals during dramatic sequences? Uh, that is, do you have a pool of raises in mind that you divide up among the different goals? Or do you have a certain raise pools in mind based on the importance of the task? I think I've touched on this a little during Words with the GM, uh, but really it for me came down to like gut feeling like um, how hard is this? Uh, and as the the dice pools that people were rolling, uh, just in general, with like their skills going up over time, the amounts went up over time. So uh, where, you know, four raises at the beginning of the campaign felt like a lot of raises, 11 at the end wasn't so much. Um, All thanks to Mateo. Uh, I wish there was a cool other way where like I memorized everyone's sheets and I knew like the average of what was happening. Generally speaking, it was, we did play test for a year and, uh, and really it, it just came down to practice. Uh, and this is what you have a GM screen for. Uh, if at some point it felt like something wasn't hard enough or easy enough, I might introduce a complication or, um, or reduce uh, the difficulty of something, uh, through environmental factors. If, if it looks like it's going to be like too hard. Uh, and the second question is music. Is it added during, uh, the editing process or do you queue it up during play? Unfortunately for the podcast, we, we don't, uh, listen to music while we play all that gets added after the fact mostly because if there was music playing in the background every time we cut something out the music would jump but uh it's worth saying that every time i run uh, a home game i play music i've i've written out like entire soundtracks for whole sessions uh, uh i love using music to immerse my players um it's just 
unfortunately for the podcast, we have to we have to go without it while we play and then add it later. Uh, our next set of questions comes from Alex. I love Goodbrand, but he doesn't use much magic for a wizard. Does Seven C have cantrip spells? Well, no, it doesn't have cantrip spells. <laughs> uh, every single sorcery, you have to spend a hero point to cast a spell. One of my quirks was that I would like choose very specifically when to use magic so that it seemed appropriate. Yeah, the, so. the quirk that comes with Vala is right. you earn a hero point if you refuse to use exactly. your magic. And so it was like a balance between if you want to use magic or if you want to get a hero point, which might be useful. <laughs> so you can use magic later. Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, Alex also asks, why didn't Kirill break more swords? That was so cool. <laughs> well, okay, probably two reasons. Um, mechanically... Because he probably wasn't allowed to. <laughs> that was very much a rule of cool use of Wrecking Ball. Yeah. Also, so, if he'd have broken more, it wouldn't have been as cool the yeah. one time he did it. That was the other thing was the flavorful part is I think that like Carol likes a challenge. So <laughs> he did the cool thing once. And yeah, if, if he does it again, it really makes it less special and interesting. And a lot less challenging for him. Uh, Alex also asks uh, for Addy, what happened to the pirate captain after he escaped? So there's a little bre- uh, breadcrumb in the episode where he disappears. Um, he went to uh, the Vatican Church in, uh, I guess, uh, in Vatican City um, when he uh, kidnapped Lockham and Grep. And, uh, well, we hear what happens to them. Um, but he, uh, I assume, continued working for the Vatican Church. Um, I had a couple of plans for him that uh, never never came to fruition. Uh, we were too busy saving the world. Um, <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, he, he has his own story. Maybe he'll turn up as a villain, uh, some other time. Uh, also for Addy, uh, how much information did you have about the iceberg crew and were they supposed to go on missions with the players? They could have, uh, gone on missions with the players and, uh, I had a decent amount of information. Um, I had everybody, uh, kind of come up with, uh, the crew themselves. Nick had a sheet, um, and he knew more than I did. Um, but instead they, they were a steadfast crew and stayed with their ship as they were told. We just didn't want to lose any of them. <laughs> Especially not other Calibrians. We cared so much about so many Calibrians. <laughs> and our final set of questions comes from Shindra. I just wanted to say I've listened for, to several podcasts so far, and I think yours is quite special in terms of atmosphere. Hope to hear more uh, in other exciting RPG systems. Uh, smiley face. Um <laughs> For Addy, how now that the campaign is finished, were there any parts of the campaign you would have changed slash done differently if you had the chance? There were a couple things that I had uh, originally outlined that we didn't get to because of time that I had to cut or change. Um, but everything that I did, I did in service to the narrative, and I was really pleased with that. So while there are minor things that maybe coulda, woulda, shoulda, I think it's better to... Uh, kind of move forward and have those in my back pocket for later. Uh, so I can't tell you they're confidential. <laughs> Anything you don't use in a campaign, you can use in the next one. <laughs> and this one is for the players. What did you either find the most fascinating or learn to appreciate the most about your character? Uh, I'm really glad this question got asked. So some of you who are longtime listeners may know that my characters have uh, something of a problem with doomed romance. I actually made Mateo trying to avoid that completely in the first episode of The Lost 
uh, bonus episodes. There's a part at the end where like it's it's like there's this big build up to his meeting with like a Jenny, and it's kind of revealed that uh, like Mateo is like asexual, and he's not really he's kind of a romantic as well, and that ended up just completely backfiring <laughs> and it turns out being an asexual character actually set mateo up for doomed romance and did not cause him to avoid it at all but there is this magnificent catharsis in his like confrontation with caroline after he's manipulated her and used her without like a thought to the the like feelings she has that he can't understand and he has this reckoning with himself that was like it was one of the moments where like you are playing an rpg you're like in another character and you actually like experience a moment of empathy that you would never have in your own life mm. because i was playing a character with such like a different worldview and experience and so mateo's like kind of under uh coming to terms with like the way he sees the world and the way he uses others was like a real like big moment for me as a player. And I really loved getting to experience that. I guess for good brand, um, he was a hard character for me to pin down as I think I've said a couple of times now, but I think by the end of it, just really finding uh, a role for him to play within a group and like actually, you know, not being holed up and looking at numbers and learning about magic and words and muttering to himself like a crazy person and actually like becoming a socialized person. I really like how he ended up. And, you know, since he's not dead, he's actually kind of a character that uh, if he gets reborn in another system, maybe I would like to see that happen or play it. I don't know if that answers that question, but that's what I answered it with. So uh, let's move right on. Uh, I think what I ended up appreciating a lot about Kirill, and like mostly from the start, but it ran through the whole thing, uh, is just that he's just so like big and open and doesn't have the problem I, Nick, personally have of like getting stuck in my head about some things. He just kind of goes for it, and it always works out well for him. Uh <laughs> But yeah, he just he just had a good time. <laughs> uh, one of the things I liked most about uh, playing Bastion uh, was I had kind of gone into it being like, oh, you know, the thing he'll bring to the table besides just being really good at stabbing people uh, will be like he's been around the world and he's seen all these different things. He's been to like almost every corner of Thea. You know, he's got like a lot of a lot of wisdom he's carrying with him. And like that kind of led into uh, my character interactions with Matteo because like I I. Uh, without even really thinking, kind of fell into this almost father uh, father figure for him where uh, I was trying to teach him life lessons and pass on my my wisdom from my experiences uh, uh, to him. And then there was this great moment where uh, it it kind of flipped. Uh, and and I, I know I mentioned it in one of the words with the GMs, uh, which was like, you know, I was planning on scolding him for like trying to like uh, talk to uh, Caroline and... Uh, Isabel, uh, and then it's punctuated by uh, Bastian kind of like losing his cool and murdering a bunch of uh, inquisitors, and then uh, Matteo scolding Bastion saying like, look, sometimes you can solve things with words, how about you let me work, because that's how I solve problems, and uh, and 
I had the same arc of realization of the truth of those statements as Bastion because I was like still ready to scold him, still ready to do it. And then he snuck away. I was like, okay, this is the moment. I'm going to scold him. You know, I'm going to wait. I'm going to scold him. And he's going to come back and be like, I know you just went to talk to Isabel. Ha ha. And then he came back and like right in that moment with Bastion at, at, at the same time as Bastion, I was like, I should let him work. <laughs> he's right. This is, he's, he's got this. I should trust him. Uh, and that happened like simultaneously for both Tommy and Bastion. And it was, uh, it was like a great moment where like, I, I fell so much into his, um, his confidence in his experience that, uh, I, I thought that I knew best when obviously Mateo was the one who needed to handle that situation. And it led to that great moment where Mateo tried to scold Bastion and he totally chewed and flipped him. <laughs> I was really excited for that coming up. I was, and I held on to that with the same kernel of joy that Bastion did. I'm like, well, when he gets mad at me later, I'm just going to be like, ha, <laughs> I'm still wise. <laughs> um, uh, but then the other, uh, as far as um, uh, learn to appreciate, I, uh, I think it's a... I think it's Bastion's fear of horses, <laughs> which I which I know I talked about in one of the words with the GM, how it was just a thing on his character sheet. He never had a ride. And I just decided terrified of horses. Yep. Yep. <laughs> uh, but uh, that's that's actually all we have uh, for questions. Uh, yep. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, thank you so much for sending in questions. Uh, we love having these kind of conversations with you guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're really, really looking forward to uh, Series 8. The bloops will be out next week. Uh, definitely listen to those. Let me tell you, there's a lot of them <laughs> for this series. It's going to be the longest bloops in Essential, uh, essential NPCs history. Yes. Um, so check into those next week. Uh, they're going to be a lot of fun. And then the week following that, uh, we will begin the first episode of the Fantasy Flight Star Wars RPG. Um, so... Uh, uh, thank you again for listening. Thank you for voting in 7C. It's been a ton of fun. Uh, yeah. Thanks, guys. And we will see you soon. Enjoy the bloops. This podcast has been brought to you by ENPC Productions. All rights reserved. The Essential NPCs podcast is not affiliated with, endorsed, Sponsored or specifically approved by John Wick Presents. 7C is a trademark of John Wick Presents. For more information, go to www.johnwickpresents.com.